Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. Our chapter began with Jesus and his foes in verses 1 through 4. It will now continue with Jesus and his followers from verse 5 to verse 28. Remember the theme of the book, which we've repeated. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king by virtue of his virgin birth. He's the king by virtue of predictive prophecy. He is the king according to the power that's been given to him by God and the Holy Spirit. And you'll remember that over his cross in three different languages will be written the words, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so who is this king? And clearly, this question about the identity of Jesus is perhaps one of the most remarkable questions that's ever been asked. Jesus is, without a doubt, the most important human being who has ever lived. And again, the answer to the question of Jesus' identity has been disputed. It's been debated. It's been doubted. And by a few determined and believed, some believe that Jesus was a myth or a legend along the lines of Ulysses or Hercules. But the historical evidence is simply overwhelming for his literal, physical historical existence. Jesus is a man of history. We know that Jesus was born in the reign of Augustus Caesar. We know that he was crucified in the reign of Tiberius Caesar under the procurator Pontius Pilate in the province of Judea. Tacitus, perhaps the greatest Roman historian born in the first century, speaks of Jesus. Josephus, a Jewish historian born in AD 37, tells of the crucifixion of Jesus. A contemporary Bible scholar said that, quote, the latest edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica uses 20,000 words in describing the person of Jesus. This is more than... Aristotle, Cicero, Alexander, Julius Caesar, Buddha, Confucius, Mohammed, Napoleon Bonaparte combined. 
So who is the most credible source of information about the king's identity? I'm going to suggest to you that it's the king himself. Charles Edward Jefferson described Jesus this way. He said, quote, there is something so pure and so frank and so noble about him that to doubt his sincerity should be like doubting the brightness of the sun, unquote. In this passage, Jesus will reveal his secret identity. Like most kids growing up, I loved superheroes. I loved Batman. I loved Superman. I loved Spider-Man. Each of these superheroes had a, a secret identity. And by the way, my introduction to Superman wasn't through the comics, but in the 1950s, the television series that starred George Reeves. He played Clark Kent, the mild-mannered reporter from the Daily Planet. Some of you remember. And you'll remember his disguise. Brill cream and glasses. <laughs> Clark was always gone when Superman was around. And even as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, I thought, this isn't a very good disguise. And what was Jesus' disguise? Why did it take the disciples so long to figure out his identity? When you're looking at this, you're looking at all of these other people and you're thinking, is everyone in the world stupid? How could they not see? Jesus turns water into wine. He raises people from the dead. He calms storms. He walks on water. He manipulates matter. He causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, those suffering from demon possession to be delivered. He looks human. But he never sins. He teaches and represents God perfectly. And some of the most exciting superhero stories centered around their enemies discovering the secret identity and then using that information to threaten the hero's family or threaten the hero's friends. And if the friends found out the hero's secret identity, it was sure to put them at risk. But knowing the secret identity changed their relationship forever. And knowing the truth about Jesus, knowing the truth about his identity is supposed to change you. You're supposed to be different when you know the truth about who he is. And look what it says in verse 13. It begins, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus asks his question in the region of Caesarea Philippi. I've been there several times. It's one of the most beautiful regions in, in all of Israel. There are pools of water. And back in the day when Jesus was alive and he was taking his disciples to this particular place, it would have been filled with rich forests. 
It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, near the slopes of Mount Hermon. And it's there on the side of a, of a wall that a bubbling creek comes out and it provides massive pools of water. And the territory was ruled by a man named Philip, who is the brother of Herod Antipas. And archaeology reveals that the area was littered with pagan, Greek, Roman idols. When I was there on the side of the mountain, there's an orifice, if you will, that was the place where they had the, 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 the temple to what was called Banias or Pan or the Greek god Pan and Bacchus. In ancient times, in different places, it was occupied by the Babylonians. It was occupied by the Persians. It was occupied by the Greeks. It was occupied by the Romans. It was occupied by the Syrians, the Egyptians, and the Philistines. And why am I bringing that up? Because each and every one of them brought a new way of thinking about life and reality, gods and goddesses, and a worldview. Thousands of years later, people still wonder about the identity of Jesus. Some try to complicate his identity. There was some graffiti found on a wall at St. John's University. It said, quote, Jesus said unto them, Who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kirigma in which we find the ultimate meaning for our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, what? <laughs> we get that people want to complicate who he is. When Jesus himself uses the title, Son of man. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? He's using his favorite term to describe himself. In his messianic identity. In his identification with humanity. And I did a little research on this and I discovered something very, very odd. The term son of man is only used by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, when he's getting ready to be killed. John uses it in the book of Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14. This is the only other times in the New Testament. It was his way, it's his way of identifying himself as a human being. He's identifying himself with you, with humanity. If you skip down just for a moment in verse 15, it says, He said to them, but who do you say that I am? He's going to ask the entire group of disciples. We're going to come back to verse 14 in just a moment. But Jesus is going to move from the general to the specific. Again, in context, the way I would put this is, context is king, pun intended. He is the king. The context is he is the king in his identity and the disciples think about it, have walked 
with him. They have talked with him. They have woken up with him and gone to bed at night with him. We know of his genealogy in chapter 1, his birth in chapter 2, his message in chapter 3. We have been shown the principles of the king in chapters 5 through 7, the power of the king in chapters 8 through 10. We saw his message rejected. We saw his works denied. We saw his principles attacked. We saw the, the series of parables about the kingdom in chapters 11 through 13. And the first half of Matthew's gospel has dealt with the revelation of the king and it continued with the rebellion against the king. Jesus, by his character and conduct and miracles, have made an impression on the people who have walked with him. And he's made an impression on each and every one of you who've walked with me as we've gone through our study in the book of Matthew going over all of these issues. So who is he? What will you say? How will you answer this most important question? And I need to warn you. Jesus is not who we think he is unless we come to the same conclusion that he came to about himself. Doesn't that make sense to you? The truth is that no matter who you think he is and no matter what you think he is, if you think something different from what he thinks about himself, the chances are you are going to get the answer wrong. He claimed to be the son of the most high God. He claims that he's going to sit on the right hand of power. That means he has access to the very power of God. And I want you to just pause for a moment. And I want you to let that concept sink deep inside of you. Jesus has access to the very power of God. He claims that whatever God can do... He can do. He claims that whatever God can do, He can do. He also claims that He's going to come back. Now we go back to verse 14. What are people thinking in the world? So they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some Elijah, others Jeremiah, others one of the prophets. The answer the disciples give reveal the rich differences of opinion already circulating during Christ's earthly ministry. What do all of those names have in common, by the way? When you read John the Baptist, when you read Elijah, when you read Jeremiah, when you read the prophets in your mind, you should be able to go, there's a certain kind of continuity. All of those are Hebrew prophets. These are Israeli prophets. These are biblical people who have been given a message by God to the people of God. They're all examples of men called by God. All examples of men used by God. 
All examples of men whose ultimate purpose was to tell the people of Israel God's message, God's plan, God's heart. All of them spoke for God. Now remember Herod Antipas believed that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. Remember from chapter 14 verses 1 and 2. Others believed he was Elijah since this prophet mysteriously disappeared. And according to biblical tradition, will reappear prior to the Messiah, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Some Jews believe that Jeremiah was immortal. They believe it because his death is never mentioned in the scripture. Others believe that Jeremiah died in Egypt. Everyone who heard Jesus knew that there was supernatural authority that surrounded his speech. All of these men were voices of warning. All of these people called Israel to repent of their sin and return to God. John the Baptist called on the people to confess their sin. And then physically demonstrate their willingness to turn and obey God through the act of baptism. John told soldiers to stop oppressing people. He told tax collectors to stop stealing from people. He told fathers to stop neglecting and ignoring their children and to minister to them. What does all of this have to do with anything? And clearly, whatever John else was, he is a biblical voice, but he's also a moral voice. Asking for a moral change. Elijah is a prophet and a miracle worker. You'll recall that he's taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. And again, the prophet Malachi predicts his return in chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Others, Jeremiah the prophet. They must have said, look at Jesus. Look at how he cares for people. Look at his compassion. Look at his tears. Look at his sorrow. Look at how he weeps for the lost. Look at how he cares for the sheep of Israel. Look at how he suffers. Is Jesus the voice of judgment? Is Jesus simply one more voice in a long line of voices sent by the prophets? Some have speculated that Jesus was the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, where Moses hears from the Lord that God will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them and I will command him and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name I will require it of him. It was some sort of prophet who was going to speak the word of God and he was going to say what God thought, what God wanted, what God needed and God's point would be and you need to listen to him because the moment you hear these words from him I'm going to hold you accountable for the words that you hear from Jesus. And so we repeat the question, 
Who are you? A voice of warning? A miracle worker? The voice of judgment? The voice of God? Simon Peter answers and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter's answer includes two really big concepts. One speaks of his messianic identity. You are the Christ. The other, his deity. You are the son of the living God. So when he says, what does that mean that you are the Christ? It means that everything that all of the prophets had foretold from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as you push through the history and reality of what it meant to be a Jew and the revelation of the Jewish people concerning the things of God, that a Messiah would come, it begins in Genesis and makes its way all the way to the end of Malachi. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And this is the answer that is unacceptable to the world at large. This is the answer that the world condemns and cults deny. All other answers are deficient, insufficient, inadequate, incomplete. This is the answer that divides the kingdom of Christ from the kingdom of the cults. You have heard me say repeatedly, if you are wrong about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you're right about. You can't get this particular issue wrong. In the world, Jesus is an ascended master. He's an alien arrival. He's a prophet. He's a teacher. He's any number of things that people will try to proclaim that he is apart from the biblical revelation, apart from what he says about himself. But if you're a Christ follower, if you're a Jesus person, he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. According to the creeds, he is God of God and light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made. Jesus is Lord and God. And this is why, from the very beginning, the church taught. That Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. And I know some of you who have math go, wait, you, you can't be both. Well, he is. He is undivided in his humanity and deity. He is the self-existent God who takes on a second nature, a human nature, one which he will have for all eternity. Which is it? Is he God? Yes. Is he human? Yes. Well, which is it? Both. And look at his classic answer in verse 17. Jesus answers and says to them, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The Lord uses a play on words. 
He begins by saying, oh, how happy or blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He says, you are Peter. The word in the original language is Petros. It means a small stone. For those of you who grew up in the television age and you would watch the flint stones. There was Fred and there was Wilma and they had a little daughter and her name was... This is who he is. It's pebble. This is a small stone. So rather than the female version, it would be peblito. He's peblito. He says, you are Peter, a small stone, and upon this rock, Petra. This is a massive rock. This is a rock foundation. Imagine you make your way down C-470 and you take the Morrison exit and somehow you make it over to Red Rocks and you see this gigantic, massive monument that comes literally out of the ground and you pick up a tiny pebble and you look at this massive rock and you look at the pebble and you draw the, the conclusion that they're one and the same and that means you're not getting it. So when he says... You are the pebble, and on this Petra, I will build my church. This, by the way, is the first mention of the church in the New Testament. This is the beginning of the mention of the church, and we're going to have a whole lot to say about the church in the weeks ahead. So what is Jesus saying? In the Roman Catholic tradition, it's claimed that Peter is the first pope. And it gives Peter the power to dispense grace. In other words, according to the Roman Catholic tradition, the belief is at this point that Jesus is empowering Peter to dispense the necessities of grace through Peter onto the church. But is that actually what the text is saying to us? Remember the context. In chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 10, in every single chapter of this book, the context has always been the kingship of Jesus. The, and remember the immediate context. The immediate context is the identity of Jesus. Peter rightly says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, in verse 16. And the statement is made by revelation from the Father in heaven in verse 17. And by the way, just for you Greek geeks, when Jesus uses the term Petra, the foundation stone, the word is feminine, not masculine. Why is that important in this context? Because it can't mean a proper name. So the Lord Jesus doesn't say, upon you Peter, Petros, but upon this rock, Petros. I will build my church. So what is he talking about? Is this divine revelation? Is this the profession of faith? Is this something else? On what is Jesus in fact building his church? By the way, what makes more sense to you? That Jesus is founding his church on Peter and entrusting its existence to Peter and to Peter's successors? Or is Jesus founding the church on himself, 
on his life, on his death, on his resurrection, is Jesus basing the entire future of everything that is on him or on himself. Now, I think it is safe to say that the rock, in part, refers to all that Jesus has done to accomplish our salvation. But again, the emphasis is on Peter and the response of Jesus to Peter And I'm going to suggest to you that the most likely interpretation and explanation of the statement is that this confession of faith that Peter gives and that all true believers must one day give makes much better sense. The truth is you can't be a part of the church unless you're willing to confess That Jesus is God's Christ. And that he is in fact the son of the living God. Remember in John the opening chapter it says to everyone who believed. These are the people that he gave the right to be called the children of God. In 1 John chapter 3 it says. Behold what manner of love the fathers lavished on you. That you should be called the children of God. And such you are. You've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter doesn't fabricate or manufacture the doctrine of Christ's divinity. He doesn't make it up. This isn't the fabrication of people who follow Jesus. The Father reveals it to him. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. The truth about Jesus comes from the Father. It comes from heaven. Why do I keep repeating this? Because, again, the deity of Jesus isn't a human invention. And when Jesus says, I will build my church, indicating the building of the church in the future, he's talking about some sort of future event. And again, this is the first mention of the church. The church begins on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So once again, we're forced to wrestle with the context. The king's identity. Who or what is the Petra? The foundation stone. And there are clues that are given throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. The chief cornerstone of the church. In the Old Testament, the rock speaks of God and not man. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. In verse 15, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, there's a vision of a rock that comes from heaven and smashes the idol and then fills the earth. In Psalm 18.2, Jehovah is the rock. So what does Jesus say? Later in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus will say, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Peter believed Jesus to be that stone in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and Acts chapter 4 verse 11. The psalmist believed the Messiah was that stone in 118.22. Paul believed Jesus to be the rock and then names Christ as the rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. He calls Jesus the head of the church in Ephesians 1.20, Ephesians 4.18, Ephesians 5.23, Colossians 1.18. 
Are you persuaded that Jesus is the head of the church? And by the way, did Peter ever claim to be the Pope? Did he ever claim to be the head of, of the church? Did he ever claim to be the chief apostle? I'm going to suggest to you he claims exactly the opposite. In 1 Peter chapter 5, in verses 1 through 4, in his own words, he says, I'm going to turn there, I should have marked it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, listen to what he says. The elders who are among you I exhort. I am a fellow elder. I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I'm a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. That means he's saved. When he says, I'm a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed, it's his way of saying, I've been born again. I'm saved. He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those who are entrusted to you, but because you are examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. Does this sound like a guy who wants you to kiss his ring? So what in the world does this passage mean? If it means what I think that it means... That your willingness to literally say what Jesus says about himself becomes the stakes of what's going to happen to you forever and ever. You see, there's a reason why Jesus will die on a cross. It isn't because this isn't just some sort of clever argument that we have to have in order to exist, it becomes the very necessity of how a person's sins are cleansed, how a person enters into a right relationship with God and gets saved forever. And we can't neglect the last half of the verse that says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. At Panius, when you come to the place where the water is coming out of the rock, there is the remnants of a cave. And in the ancient world, the caves served in the Greek mindset as a portal to another world or another dimension. Gates served as entryways to somewhere. The gates of the city provided protection for the people who were inside the city. The gates of Hades may mean the portal to the underworld. It might mean the place of the dead. It might mean the place where Satan has rule or dominion. So does Satan have the power to wage war against God and his saints? And I think that the answer is yes. But will Satan prevail against God, against his church, against his people? This is exactly the statement that is made by Muslims concerning Jesus. The gates of hell did prevail. Jesus wasn't the final word and the final prophet according to Islam. 
The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or better known as Mormons, contend that the early church engaged in a wholesale apostasy and that their prophet Joseph Smith was called by God to restore the true church because the true church, according to them, was lost. They started it, okay, but we're going to finish it. The true church was never lost. The true church has always been people who have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, who have been saved by grace through faith. This statement describes the future of the church. It's one of victory. And then Jesus makes a faithful charge to the church in verse 19. Look what it says. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. You can imagine controversy also surrounds this verse as well. What are these keys? Are these keys the stewardship entrusted to Peter and the Roman Catholic Church according to their tradition? Or are these keys to the church or keys to the kingdom? And does it even matter? Is there a difference between the church and the kingdom? And what's being addressed here? Is it the church or is it the kingdom? And I'm going to suggest to you that using Jesus' own words, it's the keys to the kingdom. Now again, they can't be the keys to death and eternity because Jesus clearly holds those in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18 where he says, I'm the one who holds the keys to to hell and death. In other words, Jesus will also say all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. It hasn't been given to Mohammed. It hasn't been given to Joseph Smith. And it hasn't been given to me. I'm not the one who determines who goes to heaven and hell. The one who determines who goes to heaven and hell is Jesus Christ the Lord. Keys in the Bible were often used as metaphors or symbols of authority and stewardship. It's used that way in Isaiah 22, 22. It's used that way in Luke chapter 11, verse 52. When, and Warren Wiersbe says in his commentary, Peter used these keys when he opened the door of faith in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, to the Jews, Acts chapter 2, the Samaritans, Acts chapter 8, the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10. This is stewardship, not lordship. And so what of the binding and loosing, what does that mean? What does it mean to bind things on the earth and then have them bound in heaven? In Matthew chapter 18, the phrase is used in the context of church discipline. And the power is given to Peter, but also to the, all of the rest of the disciples. In the first century, in the days of Jesus, the phrase was used to describe a rabbi who would forbid something or permit something. And so in that context and in the first century, it meant to allow or to refrain from allowing. In William's translation of the passage, He writes, whatsoever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth is what's already permitted in heaven. And I think it captures the sentiment. So does the church 
tell heaven what to do? Or does heaven tell the church what to do? Yeah, that, doesn't that make more sense to you? Can you imagine the Lord saying, hey, you, whoever you happen to be, I'm going to entrust a person's eternal fate in your hands. You get to choose if they go to heaven or hell. Can you imagine how some people might abuse that kind of a privilege? Jesus reserves this privilege for himself. He doesn't entrust it to anybody else. Jesus protects his church by giving her the keys to the kingdom. What does that mean? I'll use my wife as an illustration. After service, see what's on her key ring. What does she have? She has the keys to our house. She has the keys to the church. She has the keys to her car. She doesn't have the keys to my car. <laughs> oh, you misunderstand. She, that doesn't mean she doesn't have access to my car. She just simply doesn't drive it because she doesn't want to. And this becomes part of the point. She has access to everything that I have access to. If she wants to move my car and drive my car, she knows where she can find the key. So what exactly is he saying? I'm going to suggest to you that we have access to what he's given us access to through his love and through his sacrifice and through his death. You have access to grace. You have access to forgiveness. You have access to hope. You have access to the future. You have access to life. And look what it says. In verse 20, he says, Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he is Jesus the Christ. So why does Jesus command or sternly order the disciples to tell no one that he is Jesus the Christ? Clearly, they still don't understand the implications of Peter's confession. Everyone expected God's Messiah to revolt against Rome, to deliver the nation. And people weren't looking for a Messiah to deliver them from the bondage of sin. Just like today, people who misrepresent, misinterpret, misidentify Jesus, they want a Jesus who will give them more information. They want a Jesus who will give them hallelujah, miracle power. They want a Jesus who will do what they want, what they want him to do for, for them. They don't necessarily want a Jesus who's going to be on a cross, who's going to die and come back to life. Did anyone else confess that Jesus is the Lord in the Bible? Nathaniel, in the first chapter of John, remember Jesus tells Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Why didn't Jesus say, Blessed art thou, Nathaniel? Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. In Luke chapter 5, after a miraculous catch a fish, Peter acknowledges that Jesus is Lord and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. At that point, Jesus doesn't say, you're Peter, or you're a Mr. Fish at this point. He doesn't say, you're Peter, a small stone, and upon you I'm going to build my church. In John 6, 
In Matthew 14, Jesus feeds 5,000 people and Peter says, truly you're the son of God. You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to build my church. Why? Because even though these words are found earlier, I'm going to remind you of something in each and every case. It's, a, it's an emotional response to a physical miracle. It's an emotional response to a physical miracle. And some of you have had emotional responses to physical miracles. You've had moms and dads, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends who have had emotional responses to physical or supernatural occurrences. And then when things are hard, they walk away. The church is the creation of Christ. The church is based on his identity and mission. And the church has to get the identity of Jesus right and the mission of Jesus right. And later in the very next section, he's going to talk about discipleship. And clearly the church should be moral and supernatural and compassionate and thoughtful in both doctrine and deed. But only Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. The church isn't simply a platform for political activity or moral musing or intellectual curiosity. The church is the place where we find out about Jesus, where we worship Jesus, where we love Jesus, where we believe Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is everything. And where Jesus is believed and loved and honored and obeyed, there'll be power. There'll be evangelism. There'll be compassion. Where Jesus is honored. Where Jesus is taught. Where Jesus is properly represented. So who is he? Who is he to you? To the artist, he's the altogether lovely one. To the architect, he's the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, he's the son of righteousness. To the baker, he's the living bread that came down from heaven. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is life. To the carpenter, he's the sure foundation. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the educator, he's the great teacher. To the farmer, he is the sower and the lord of the harvest. To the florist, he's the lily of the valley. And the, and the rose of Sharon, to the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the horticulturist, he's the true vine. To the judge, he's the righteous judge. To the juror, he's the true witness. To the jeweler, he's the pearl of great price. To the editor, he's the good tidings of great joy. To the eye doctor, he's the light of the eyes. To the philosopher, he's the wisdom of God. To the printer, he's the true type. To the servant, he's the master. To the student, he's the truth to the laborer he's rest and to the sinner to the sinner he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 
to the Christian, he's the son of the living God. He's the savior. He's the redeemer. He's the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how wonderful it is to be able to call you Lord. To know that our sin has been forgiven, that we've experienced grace and mercy. And Heavenly Father, it doesn't make sense that once we know the true identity of Jesus, that we would do anything other than to love him, to humble ourselves, to believe him, to trust him. Lord, I pray for the person who's been sitting on the fence or who has walked away or has been confused. Lord, I pray that they would forever and finally declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's the lover of my soul. He's the forgiver of my sin. He's the object of affection and the hope for our future. And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that person. I pray for that person who's listening right now, who's never, ever come to grips and made the decision, yes, it's true, Jesus is the Lord. Yes, it's true, and because he's the Lord, my life has to be different. My decisions have to be different. In order for my future to be different, I have to be different. So, Lord, I pray that they would make that commitment. They would give their heart to you, confess their sin, turn from their sin, and embrace you and believe you and trust you. And Heavenly Father, again, I just pray that you would move upon their heart, that they would pray a simple prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus came to die on a cross and rise from the dead that he's alive and because he's alive he can really forgive my sin and change my heart and be with me forever I believe these things and I trust you in Jesus name Amen